I always get a kick out of all the kids running into junior church. Yes, we get to go to junior church. And then all the adults, ah, sits back, relax, get in for uh, a soothing, relaxing, sleepy uh, message. Uh, so this morning, uh, we are continuing our series on how to read the Bible. This is a series that uh, we started last week, um, and uh, I wanted to talk about this as there is a lot that is standing in our way, uh, both you and I, of being able to read the Bible and understand and interpret what exactly it means. I mean, there's a number of big obstacles, like uh, the fact that it was written thousands of years ago, the fact that it was written in complete different languages than I believe any of us here uh, is fluent in, and it was written halfway across the earth in a completely, when I mean completely, completely different culture than ours. And so there's many different hurdles that are standing in our way of being able to open our Bibles and understand what exactly we are reading. And ultimately, my goal is, in going through this series, I want to help eliminate the instance when you are at home and you are sitting uh, on your couch, maybe you're laying in bed, maybe you're sitting at your desk, wherever it may be, where you're at peace and you focus in on God and you open your Bible and you read, say, for five minutes, 10 minutes, or 15 minutes. And then after all of that, you ask, what in the world did I just read? We have all been there. Some of you guys may be thinking, no, I'm the only one who's done this. No, we, we have all been there, myself included. And so hopefully throughout uh, this series, we can help eliminate that instance, that occurrence, and wondering what in the world did I uh, just read? And so as we mentioned last week, throughout this series, it's going to be more of a classroom uh, setting and vibe. Uh, so bear with me. I understand that it might not be the most exhilarating uh, discussion. Uh, I won't be jumping around, running around, yelling at the top of my lungs like I do a lot of Sundays. Um, uh, but uh, this process of learning this um, is extremely, extremely important. There is a lot of valuable information to be had uh, throughout the series, How to Read uh, the Bible. And so last week as we uh, introduced this series, we just did a very, very brief overview um, of the Bible. We took a look at a map of some of the key uh, places, uh, of the uh, key events of the Bible. We took a look at a brief outline or timeline of the Bible and get a good kind of sequence of events in our mind to help us understand where these different events may uh, plug into. And we also talked about different resources uh, that you guys can use to help you understand uh, the Bible. Um, the resource that uh, seemed uh, the most hot at the time uh, were, I'll grab one uh, real quick, were these Binders uh, that we printed off, uh, the Bible blueprints, uh, they just go over uh, a brief uh, overview of each of the 66 books. If you weren't here and you'd like to have one, it would be my joy and pleasure uh, to get you guys one. Or if you brought it home and some of your family members saw it or friends, coworkers, whoever it may be, and say, wow, that's awesome, go ahead and grab an extra copy for them. There's about 10 extras, but if we run out, uh, it would be my joy to print more if they were uh, going to be used for someone to help understand the Bible. And so today, uh, we are going to be talking about some of the different literary styles of the Bible. 
So if we were all to go, imagine we all go on a uh, field trip to Barnes & Noble or to the library or wherever is your favorite place uh, to go uh, get books. My personal favorite is on my couch, on my laptop, on Amazon, uh, wherever it may be where, where you shop uh, for books. Just imagine we are there, and when you scroll through all of the different books, you notice that there are a lot of different sections of books. There's lots of different categories of writing, lots of different styles. There are biographies. I like a good biography, whether it's, whether it's an autobiography or not. There's nonfiction, there's fiction, there's fantasy, there's self-help, my personal favorite. There's uh, novels, there's sci-fi, there's poetry, and the list goes on and on and on. And on a very similar note, the Bible is composed of different styles of writing as well. There's different literary styles that these different authors used in their writings. As again, the Bible is not just one book. It is a collection of 66 books. And so we can imagine the Bible there is a library, and on one shelf are the 66 books of the Bible written by a different author. Some of these authors wrote a handful of books like Moses and Paul especially, but there's a handful uh, of different authors. And these different authors, they have different styles of writing. Some of the authors, they use different literary styles in the same exact book. In fact, a lot of them do. A lot of uh, modern uh, writings and, and books have different literary styles found within uh, the same book as well. And so we're going we're gonna to keep this simplified. I'm a simple guy. I love simple things. If you don't love simple things like me, I'm sorry. But we're going to boil this down, uh, the Bible down to three main literary styles. So the three main literary styles that are found in our Bible, we have narrative, we have poetry, and we have discourse. And we'll talk about all of these um, in more detail in a minute here. But first, we'll talk about a uh, similarity kind of uh, between these three literary styles. Well, a couple of years ago, um, my buddy uh, Jacob and I wanted to be more cultured. We got kind of this Renaissance vibe. We want to be a Renaissance man, uh, know a little bit of everything. And so we decided to help us be a little more cultured, a little more sophisticated. We were, gonna, we were going to read a classic novel. And so we determined we were going to read Moby Dick. Raise your hand if you've read Moby Dick before. I am sorry. Uh, <laughs> Moby Dick is about a group of guys that go whale hunting. Uh, I don't remember exactly how many pages it is. About 500 uh, pages, rough, maybe closer to 400. I don't remember exactly. Uh, but I read through roughly uh, the first 150 pages of the book. And I hate to spoil it for those of you who haven't read it. Uh, but do you know what they did in the first 150 pages of the book Moby Dick? All that took place was they left the port. That is all that took place in 150 pages of reading. That is the only development in the plot that took place. Whoever the author is, I don't remember. But he would just go on and on and on about setting the scene of these guys going whale hunting. And I could not bear it anymore. I uh, didn't touch that book ever again after the first 150 pages. And it was a struggle uh, to get through uh, those first 150 pages. So shame on those who made Moby Dick a classic novel and wasted 
five or so hours of my life. As far as I'm concerned, it can be lost in the annals of history. Um, but fortunately, we don't run into that issue with the Bible at all. Moby Dick is full of detail after detail after detail after detail, but the Bible is very void of details. There is a ton that takes place in these pages, probably about a thousand pages in your Bible. There is a lot that takes place. And in all these different literary styles, the, the narrative, poetry, and discourse, all these different styles and all these different authors, they kind of skip over the details. And they get right into the meat of the story, the meat of what is at hand. And that can be somewhat uncommon for us today. You know, if we were to go and read a novel, we would expect to know what the protagonist looked like. You know, if he had blue eyes or brown eyes, if he had freckles, if he had whatever it may be. But we don't really get that in the Bible. There are a couple instances where we are uh, clued into what these people look like. And when we do, we know that it plays an important role in the story. As ancient uh, Jewish literature, and from my understanding, just ancient literature in general, they, they, they sort of lack the quantity of detail that we have today in our writings. I mean, we don't even really know what Jesus looks like. I mean, if you were to go on Google and images and you uh, click on Jesus, you get lots of different interpretations of what Jesus looked like. And when you ask why that is, it's because they don't talk about really what Jesus looked like. Basically, the only detail about what Jesus looked like is he looked like a common man of his time. He got lost into the crowd in one instant. So like the main good guy, the main human being in, in the story of the Bible, we don't know really at all what he looks like. And so that kind of clues us in that, yeah, the, the, this, the Bible, these, these collection of 66 different books, they are lacking in detail. And so when we do see a detail, we have to do uh, a couple of things. Number one, we have to take special note of that particular detail. For example, uh, I've been reading through my personal devotions, been reading through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, all about uh, King Saul, and then David uh, comes into the picture about halfway through uh, the book as well. And the Bible describes King Saul as a tall, uh, kind of good-looking man. That, that's all that we basically know about his physical appearance, that he was basically taller than all those around him. And then it talks about uh, David, and David is depicted as someone who is, a rather, who is somewhat smaller than those around them. And as we read the story, we see that these physical appearances match their persona. Saul, or, uh, Saul being someone who was big and tall, uh, his persona matched that. He was very prideful. He let his pride get in the way. His pride was his downfall as he was very jealous of eventually King David. And David was a small man, and that matched his persona as well, that David was a humble man after God's own heart. And so we have to realize that uh, when we do get details of what people look like, details of uh, certain settings, realize that more often than not, uh, they play an important uh, role in the story. And we also have to realize then with this lack of detail as I mentioned earlier, that the story progresses extremely fast. There can be a huge event that takes place in the scriptures, 
And it could be recorded in just a couple of verses. Stories of angels coming and slaughtering over 100,000 people you can read about in just one verse. Whereas if we were to read that in a, in, a, uh, in a more modern novel today, if the author Moby Dick got his hands on that, uh, boy, I, I'm not sure I would want uh, to read that. That would be a quite uh, the lengthy uh, story there. So just be aware as we talk about these different literary styles that they all lack a sense of detail. And so when we do pick up on details, we need to be extra keen, keenly aware of them and that they play a role in the story and that we have to understand that these events progress very, very fast. So the first uh, literary style uh, that we'll talk about is narrative. And narrative is the telling of a story. Mankind loves stories. We've, we've been telling stories from the very beginning of time. And according uh, to the Bible Project resource that I mentioned uh, last week, uh, the Bible is composed of about 43% narrative. So not quite, but just about half of the Bible that we read is narrative. It's the telling of a story. And with any uh, story or narrative, there is a plot. And with these 66 books here, this collection of books, the Bible, there is a main plot line that kind of connects all of these different books together. And then a lot of these different books, they have their own subplot lines as well, or multiple uh, subplot lines. Uh, But this morning, I just want to take a quick minute here and go over the main plot line of the Bible, the, the, the main plot that progresses from Genesis all the way through Revelation here. So we're going to get out uh, the whiteboard again uh, two weeks in a row. And bear with my awful handwriting. I eventually had to transition to writing in all caps because, uh, yeah, I've chicken scratch. You guys all see that. Um, but as far as the main plot line of the Bible, this is a basic structure uh, that I remember from like elementary school of how a story uh, progresses. Uh, we have the beginning here, and then uh, the action starts to rise. We have the rising action here. Then we have the climax. That's when all the emotions are at the peak, and we are wondering if the good guys are going to prevail. And then we learn that, yeah, the good guys do prevail. And so we have the falling action, and then we have the resolution. That's basically how any story that you read is structured. And so when we're talking about the Bible, uh, here at the beginning, we have creation. And we could read about that creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And here at the beginning with this creation, there is zero conflict. There's no drama whatsoever. God created a good world. God took a look at everything that he said, and he said that it was very good. And then all of a sudden, sin entered the picture. And all of a sudden, we have the fall of mankind. We can read about this fall in Genesis chapter 3. So only the first two uh, chapters uh, cover uh, this first portion of the story, the beginning, where there's no drama, there's no conflict. Life is peachy. God has a perfect relationship with mankind. And then, unfortunately, Adam and Eve, they partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they commit sin. The one rule that they had 
uh, they broke. And so we have the fall of mankind. And uh, so as we progress through the story, the rising action, we see that more and more these people, the Israelites, the, the surrounding nations, they are furthering themselves from God. They are distancing themselves from God as they are partaking habitually into a practice of sin. And so on and on throughout the course of the Bible, we see how God is using different people like Moses and Abraham and David. I was using different people in a fallen and broken world to get back to the beginning, you know, where everything was right, where, where God had a perfect relationship with mankind. And partway up through uh, the rising action here, again, I'm a simple man, we're, we're only going through the very key events of the scripture Somewhere along here, we have uh, Jesus. Jesus is born, and, and partway through uh, that rising action a, a, as the plot is progressing. And so this is where we pick up in the New Testament. So the Old Testament here, the, the conflict is building up in the Old Testament as the people have fallen away from God. And then Jesus comes, the Messiah, and the Jews think, yes, the Messiah is here. He's going to save the world. He's going to conquer the Roman Empire, and we're going to live in peace forever. God's kingdom has come today. Well, as we read uh, throughout the New Testament, Jesus, the Messiah, he did not establish God's kingdom uh, and the uh, fulfillment of it in total, uh, God's kingdom. Instead, Jesus, he spent time preaching about the kingdom. He spent time healing uh, and preaching and more. We see his ministry. And we see uh, the New Testament as well. Uh, Paul and others, they spread this Christian religion. And then at the climax here, we see here at the climax, we see the return of Jesus. So obviously this has not yet taken place here. So we, we, we are a part in this role as well. We, we are somewhere in here, part of this rising action. But in the story of the Bible, the main plot line of the Bible, at the climax, sin, is gonna, sin and evil are going to be running rampant around the world. And then finally, God is going to say, I've had enough. And God is going to send his son, Jesus, from heaven down to earth. And Jesus, when he returns to earth, he is going to establish God's kingdom. And then we know that we have won. And kind of in this falling action, we see that Jesus returns. We see uh, that he raises uh, the Christians to eternal life. We see that he uh, defeats sin and evil and he defeats death once and for all. And then here at the end of that, uh, the falling action, we have God's kingdom. So this, just one, two, three, four, five key events, this is the main plot line of the Bible. Life started out great with God and mankind, perfect relationship, 
Sin entered the picture. Sin ruined things. God had a plan from the beginning of time that Jesus was going to save us. And so Jesus came, and then sometime in the future, we don't know when, maybe later today, uh, maybe after our uh, afternoon snooze, maybe tomorrow, uh, maybe next year, we don't know. Sometime Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return to this earth that we're standing on, and he's going to defeat all bad things in this world. God has sent him all authority and power, and then God's kingdom. Where we, right where we started from the beginning, where God is going to have a perfect relationship with us in his kingdom, where everything wrong with this world is going to be made right. The only difference here is that this is going to last forever. Forever. We're going to have eternal life where everything wrong with this world is going to be made right. And so all of the events of the Bible fall somewhere in this main plot line. When we are talking about narrative, again, narrative is plot-driven. That is all going to fall in uh, this half of the board here. The narrative itself it doesn't play out uh, the, the future, the return of Jesus in God's kingdom uh, as well. So narrative, most of all of it, is going to be somewhere in here. This is where the narrative is going to take place in the scriptures. The narrative, as the plot progresses, as more and more people are born, more and more people commit sin, we see this rise in the action, this rise in the tension. And so when we are reading through the Bible and we are coming and we're reading through different narratives, we're reading about the life of King David, King Saul, we're reading about the life of Jesus and all that he did, we have to understand that this is all building up. It's all building up towards the climax when Jesus is going to return to this earth. And all these stories, all of uh, the, these uh, different narrative stories that we all love, as mankind loves a good uh, story, we see here that as the, we have this rise in action, we see that God, 100% of the time, other than uh, this man right here, Jesus, God is working with imperfect people. You know, a lot of times when we are reading a narrative, when we're reading a story, we have pretty simple a protagonist who is good, and we have an antagonist who is bad. When we're reading throughout uh, the narrative, uh, it's not that clear-cut a lot of different times. Even a lot of times, people who we, who we would think are clear-cut protagonists, they have a lot of flaws in their lives as well. A lot of the, the, the good guys in the story, like Abraham. Abraham was the man who used an Egyptian slave for sex. And then later on, he, he lied about his wife two times to save his own life, or actually before then. We read about Moses. Moses was the man who murdered an Egyptian. We read about King David. King David was the man who sleeps with another man's wife and then tries to cover that up by having, by having that same man slaughtered in the battlefield. These, these are like the, the good guys in our story. And so the Bible is a lot more complex than a, a basic like children's story that we would read where Johnny is a good boy. Johnny did this. Johnny encountered a bad guy. Bad guy went head to head with Johnny, but Johnny uh, prevailed. So when we read uh, throughout narrative uh, in the Bible, we are, not, we are not trying to mimic our lives with these guys. We're not trying to mimic the life of Abraham. 
We're not trying to mimic the life of Moses or David either. Instead, when we are reading through these narratives and we're reading about some of these other key guys like Paul and Peter, instead we should see ourselves in them. And we should try, we should put ourselves in their shoes and try and learn from their examples. Learn from what they did and what they didn't do. Learn from their successes and failures. But we don't want to just, uh, case in point, try to mimic our lives after some of these uh, key guys because they all had flaws, just like you and I. So instead of mimicking them, try to put yourself in their shoes and learn from their examples, learn from their mistakes and their successes as well. So that's narrative. About half of the Bible that we read progresses through this plot line of uh, the story of the Bible. The second uh, key literary story, literary style found in the scripture is poetry. Poetry makes up about 33% of the Bible. Uh, this, again, this is according to a Bible project. Trust me, I did not go through the whole Bible and count each verse that is narrative, poetry, or discourse. But according to Bible Project, about 33% of the Bible is made up of poetry. Now, how many people like poetry? Raise your hand. Wow, uh, that was actually uh, more uh, than I was anticipating. Personally, I'm not uh, a huge uh, poetry guy. Um, a lot of times in our modern books, uh, a lot of the modern books that we read, one-third of the book is not generally composed of poetry. We have uh, books of poetry that are basically all poems, but any novel, any self-help book, nonfiction, fiction, fantasy, generally it's not one-third filled with poetry. So this can come as a surprise to many of us. It's not really what we are familiar with in modern uh, writings. Now, uh, there are a couple books found in the Bible, most notably uh, the five books of poetry that are filled uh, with poetry, uh, like Psalms, uh, Proverbs filled uh, with poetry as well, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. They're all filled with poetry, and poetry is their main uh, literary style. But as we read throughout the rest of scriptures, especially throughout uh, the Old Testament, we see that poetry, we, we see uh, a bit of poetry here, a bit of poetry there, and a bit of poetry there. It's kind of interspersed throughout the entire Bible. You know, the author, uh, they stop the progression of the plot line, and they take a minute, and they reflect on the character uh, of the story, and that character of the story may say a nice long prayer that's in a form of poetry. They might sing a song of praise to God. They uh, might uh, talk about the emotions that they are experiencing. And so when we come across, across poetry, about one-third of the Bible we have to be aware uh, that there are going to be many uh, figures of speech. Figures of speech can sometimes be difficult uh, to pick up on. Even uh, when we are talking today, they can be difficult to talk on when we are raised in the same culture, when we speak the same language, when we are all generally about the same age in comparison to people being uh, born uh, thousands of years ago. So we have many things going our way, but even yet, figures of speech can be difficult to read, especially if you communicate via text or email or Facebook Messenger or any other way where you're, you're, you're sending text or a handwritten note because we can't pick up on their tone of voice. We can't pick up on their body language. So all the more is it difficult to pick up on these figures of speech. 
And so when we're reading uh, poetry in the Bible, one-third of our Bible, we need to, to a lot of times take our time and dig deep into uh, the meaning of what the authors are saying, as a lot of times there's a hidden deeper value behind the words uh, that we have to uh, discover. As these authors, they are painting a vivid picture in our Mind. A vivid picture of an event that took place, a vivid picture of the emotions, the raw emotions of these characters. Um, but we just have to uh, take note of that when we are reading through poetry. So the final main literary style of the Bible, there with me, we're almost there, uh, is discourse. And discourse makes up about 24% uh, percent of the Bible. So about a quarter of the Bible that you read is discourse. And when we talk about discourse, we're talking about when one singular party communicates. That party could be communicating through uh, a speech they can be communicating through a letter or uh, whatever it may be. But it's just one party, kind of like a monologue here. That's about a quarter of the Bible. In the first five books of the Bible, the Israelites, they receive the law uh, from Moses. Moses receives it from God. So there's a lot of discourse found in the first five books of the law as God talks to Moses, Moses talks to people. In the New Testament, there is a, it's heavy in discourse as well as uh, we have the four gospels and acts, but just about most of the rest of the New Testament, they are all letters written from different authors, most notably Paul. And so this is one party communicating uh, through uh, pen and paper there, or pen and scroll. Um, and so when we read through discourse, it's one party trying to make an argument, is trying to make a case, and a lot of time it develops. You know, a lot of times we may try and put ourselves in the middle of this long discourse, and this is where a lot of times we may take things completely out of context. When we're, when we're reading through discourse, we really, really, really have to be aware of the context around it. What is the overall, what is the underlying theme that uh, this person is trying to make? This is where we run into a lot of issues when we don't take a look at that overall theme of the book, overall theme of the letter, or overall theme of the speech that someone is giving. And so uh, as well, when we're reading uh, through discourse, we kind of have to take our time more uh, along with poetry as well, as a lot of times it takes heavy thought as they're talking about uh, sometimes really meat and potatoes type of conversations that are deep in thought. And so when we come across discourse a lot, especially in the New Testament there, we have to take our time as they are developing a theme. The author is trying to make a point through communication. So that's discourse. Be aware of that. So those are the three different uh, literary styles uh, found in the Bible. And most of these books that we read, they have a primary literary style. And then a lot of these books as well have a minor uh, literary style as well. A lot of them will have narrative as their main 
uh, as their primary literary style, but then eventually God will talk or someone will write a poem uh, of their emotions and such. And so we have to be aware. So when we are digging through God's word on our own at home, I encourage you guys to think about, hmm, what sort of literature, what is the style of literature that is being written here? Because we have to approach each of these different styles of literature differently. A lot of times we can kind of cruise through narrative as we're just picking up on the events and we're putting ourselves into these people's shoots. It comes really natural to us because we love stories. We tell stories uh, basically nearly every waking moment of our lives, whether we're telling them or listening uh, to them. When it comes to poetry and discourse, we have to take our time a little bit, dig into the meaning with poetry, as it'll be lots of figures, a speech, and then with discourse, they're trying to make a big overall point or arguments, and we have to decide, hmm, what, what is that underlying theme taking place there? So once we do understand these different literary styles, then we are well on our way of learning to read the Bible for ourselves, learning, eliminating the instances in which we open up our Bibles and we read it and we ask, what in the world did we just read? Because again, that is our goal as we continue throughout this series, as we want, I want all of you guys to be able to interpret and understand what the Bible is telling you, what God is telling you, because God's word is active, it's living, and it's well today, and it can speak directly to you today. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this day. Thank you for your scriptures. Father, I just pray that as we go through the series that, that you ultimately uh, are at work, that you help us come away with a true and honest interpretation of uh, the scriptures that have miraculously been preserved for each and every one of us today. So Father, I just thank you for all that you do for us. I thank you for this church. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.